Thank you, Ruth. And uh, like we've already mentioned, today is Pentecost Sunday. That's the text that we're going to be looking at. Before we get to that, though, I um, wanted to do a, a, at least a short children's message. Um, so kids, uh, this, is, this is for you. I know when I was your age, when I was younger, um, maybe before I was in school or uh, in the first couple of grades in school, when people in church would talk about the Holy Spirit, I remember not really understanding what that meant. Did any of you feel that way at all? You don't really know as much about the Holy Spirit? You see, when I, was a, when I was a kid, I had a pretty clear idea of who God the Father was, right? He was the one who created everything and, and made all things and kept it all going. Um, I had a pretty good idea of who Jesus was. Uh, he was our Savior and Lord. He's the one who saved me from my sins. And um, so I understood who Jesus was. But when it came to the Holy Spirit, there was a lot more mystery. There was a lot that I didn't understand. Now, in the years since, uh, I, I feel like I understand the Holy Spirit um, at least a little bit better. And one phrase that theologians uh, use to talk about the Holy Spirit is that they say the Holy Spirit is our teacher and our guide. So kids, how many of you have a teacher already? There's like three hands. So a lot of the rest of your parents are going to be in trouble for not sending you to school. No, I mean, what does a teacher do though, right? A teacher teaches us things that we don't know helps us understand things about the world, and then a really good teacher actually helps us apply those things to our lives as we live in this world. And it's in that sort of sense that the Holy Spirit is our teacher. He lives within us and teaches us things about our faith, about our relationship with God that we wouldn't understand otherwise, and then actually teaches us how to apply those to our life. So, okay, I kind of understand the Holy Spirit maybe a little bit better. The Holy Spirit is kind of like a teacher. What about that second part of that phrase, though? The Holy Spirit is our teacher and our guide. I started thinking about that a little bit more this past week. And... Uh, it made me think of something kind of strange. It actually made me think of these, right? So we've all had to wear these the last number of months. Fortunately, it looks like we're coming to the end of having to wear these. And so I've started thinking, well, what else? I've got a whole bunch of these in my house, these masks that I've been using to cover my face. What else could we do with these? And the former youth pastor in me came up with what I think is a pretty clever idea. We've been wearing them like this. Just move it slightly higher. And it's a blindfold. And as a former youth pastor, I used to actually use these quite a bit because in the youth group that I directed, we had quite a few games where we would blindfold people. Um, sometimes we would blindfold them and we'd make them do some sort of task, the students that I worked with. And, um, and so everyone would gather around and shout instructions to them and they had to try to carry out those tasks. And it was obviously kind of difficult and a lot of fun. Other times we would blindfold people and we would make them do kind of an obstacle course. And when we did that, we actually had somebody else who would come and take them by the hand and sort of lead them through that obstacle course. Because when you're wearing a blindfold like this, you can't see. And that's actually what Scripture says about us. It says that we are like this. Because of our sin, we are blind. We can't see. And so we need a guide to come and take us by the hand and lead us so that we don't you know, step off the edge. And that's what the Holy Spirit does for us. He comes, enters into our lives, and makes it so that we can see again. And so we're going to talk about that as we look at Pentecost this morning. I'll have you turn to Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And we'll look at our passage this morning. 
This is what it says. When the day of Pentecost came, they, that's the disciples, were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the entire house where they were. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation on earth, every nation under heaven. And when they heard the sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one of them heard their own language being spoken. Amazed, they asked, aren't all of these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native tongue? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, all of us hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they've had too much wine. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sisters and brothers in Jesus Christ, um, I'm a bit of a nerd. Uh, There are many reasons why I say that, Um, but one of them is that I love the Marvel superhero movies, okay? I've been hooked on those ever since the first Iron Man movie came out back in 2008. I've seen every one of those films, most of them in theaters and even some of them at the midnight showings on the first night that they're out. As Sarah will tell you, I don't stay up past midnight for anything, okay? But a Marvel movie, I'll do that. Uh, I also own all of those films. Our family actually has a Disney Plus account, which means that I can stream them anytime I want, wherever I am. But when you're as big of a Marvel nerd as I am, that's not good enough, okay? I actually needed to purchase and physically own copies on either DVD or Blu-ray of every single one of those movies. Now, for those of you who aren't fans of the Marvel films, which I think makes you a better person than I am, actually, um, one of the interesting things about those movies, and also part of why I got so sucked into them, uh, is that Marvel actually worked to tie all of them together. Okay, they created what they called the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and all of their movies are part of it. Um, each one of those films tells their own stories, uh, to be sure, but what the folks at Marvel did is that they also weaved those different movies together into a larger story that was bigger than any one of the individual films. Um, in other words, each of the individual movies were installments or chapters in this larger story that Marvel was trying to tell. And a few years ago, in 2019, that story finally arrived at its last chapter. Avengers Endgame was the culmination of 12 years of movie making, 22 films, and countless hours of watching them by yours truly. And uh, I was there on opening night in the theater to see it. Well, in the same way, our text for today, Acts chapter 2, represents the culmination of, of really everything that we've been talking about the last number of weeks uh, in our recent sermon series. So the last number of weeks here at Ivanrest, we've been looking at the promised land, but really what we've been looking at is actually the theme of God's presence with his people. And we've been tracing that theme uh, throughout scripture. 
And so like we've talked about, uh, you know, first of all, God was present with us when he created us as human beings in the Garden of Eden, right? Um, that's what we were intended for. We were intended to have this close, personal relationship with God. That's the kind of relationship that God wanted to have with us. Uh, because of our sin and rebellion against him, though, we lost that relationship and we lost God's presence in that close, personal way. And yet God didn't let that be the end of the story. And so slowly but surely, what we see in Scripture is that time and time again, God has worked to call people back into his presence. First, he did it with individuals, so people like Noah and Abraham and Sarah and Moses at the burning bush and others as well. But then after their exodus from Egypt, God actually did that with an entire group of people, with the Israelites. He chose them from among the nations, called them to himself, and welcomed them back into his presence. First at Mount Sinai, then traveling with them in the tabernacle, and then finally by living with them in the temple in the promised land. And we've been talking about this all over the last number of weeks. As we saw two weeks ago, though, eventually God came to be present with us in a new way. Through the word, the second person of the Trinity, his son, Jesus Christ, God came to dwell amongst, not just at the top of a mountain somewhere, not in a sacred tent in the wilderness, not even in a holy temple, but instead by actually becoming one of us, by becoming a human being, by coming as our Emmanuel, God with us. And yet, like we saw last week, even that didn't last. And we're looking at John chapter 15 and 16, and after 33 years of living among us, Jesus left. He ascended back to heaven, back to his Father. And so at first glance, like we said last week, it almost seems like we've lost God's presence among us again, right? It seems like we're back to square one. It seems like we're back to the way that things were right after our fall into sin, without God, without his presence. The good news, though, as we've been hinting at and saying throughout this entire series, is that that's not the case. Instead, like we talked about last week, before he left, Jesus promised his presence in yet another new way. He promised to give us the Holy Spirit, right? He promised that he will actually dwell in our hearts through that Spirit. And he promised that through the Spirit, we will never lose his presence again. And that, of course, is what we celebrate today. That's the culmination of everything that we've been talking about these last number of weeks. That's how it all comes together. And that's what we see happen in our text here this morning on Pentecost. Now, the interesting thing, at least to me, though, um, is that that's not originally what Pentecost was all about. You see, Pentecost wasn't originally a Christian holiday. Um, it's become one, and you know we use it to celebrate the coming of the Holy Spirit, but that's not originally what Pentecost was about. Instead, it was originally a Jewish holiday, a Jewish feast, and it actually held a pretty significant place in the Jewish religious calendar. Um, first, let's start with its name. Pentecost comes from the Greek word Pentecostus, which means 50th. And that's because it was a celebration that the Jews held every year 50 days or seven weeks after the Passover. And we did a recent sermon series on the book of Exodus as well. And so Passover was the feast that commemorated how God led the Israelites out of their slavery in Egypt in the Exodus. Um, and so it was a holiday where, where the Jewish people celebrated life. 
They celebrated the fact that God had restored their lives to them and made it possible for them to, to live outside of slavery by redeeming and rescuing them. God rescued them from a situation of death and enslavement. So Passover was a celebration of life. Well, in the same way, Pentecost, 50 days after Passover, was another celebration of life. Only this time, instead of celebrating the miraculous rescue and life that God gave them in the Exodus, on Pentecost, the, what the Israelites celebrated was the ongoing life that God made possible for them. And that's because Pentecost was an agricultural festival. It took place at the end of the grain harvest. And so what it was really all about was it was a celebration of the bounty and the goodness and the food and necessities, the daily bread that God provided his people with. In other words, it was kind of like our Thanksgiving. It was a holiday that was meant to express the Israelites' gratitude and thanks to God for everything that he had provided them with. Over time, though, uh, what actually happens in, in the Jewish uh, tradition is that Pentecost took on a second meaning. That's because 50 days after Passover was about the same time that the Israelites who originally left the land of Egypt would have been at Mount Sinai. And what happened at Mount Sinai? Well, that's where God gave the Israelites his law, right? And so at some point, the Jews started to use Pentecost to celebrate not just the everyday blessings of, of things like food and clothes and housing that God gave them, but to also celebrate the special gift and blessing of his law to them. And so by the time we read about it here, Pentecost had that double meaning for the Jewish people. It was a thanksgiving of sorts to celebrate the harvest, but it was also a thanksgiving to celebrate the giving of God's law. To put it another way, Pentecost was a holiday where the Jews celebrated the blessings that God gave them that they needed to stay alive, but it was also a holiday where they celebrated that he had taught them how to live, how to be alive according to his law. Our understanding of Pentecost then, the Christian understanding, actually picks up on both of those themes. After all, just like it was for the Jewish people, Pentecost is a harvest holiday of sorts for Christians as well. You see, right after our text uh, this morning, a little bit later in chapter 2, one of the disciples, Peter, actually stands up in the temple courts in Jerusalem and gives the first Christian sermon. He talks about how those who were gathered to see what was happening were actually witnessing the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He tells them that Jesus Christ, who they crucified, is actually the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior that they'd been waiting for for so long. And then finally, he finishes the sermon with a flourish. The text says, With many other words he warned them and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 people were added to their number that day. 3,000 people. That's quite the altar call. And yet it echoes the original meaning of Pentecost. Because just as the Jews used Pentecost to celebrate the harvest, so too the early Christians were actually seeing a harvest of their own. Only this time, instead of that harvest being grain and crops and the goodness of the earth, it was people. Through the work of the Holy Spirit, the early Christians were seeing a harvest of new believers joining the church. 
but it wasn't just the harvest imagery that the Christian understanding of Pentecost picked up because it was a celebration of the law too. I like how biblical scholar N.T. Wright uh, talks about this. He says, When the Israelites arrived at Mount Sinai, Moses went up the mountain and then came down again with the law. Here Jesus has gone up into heaven in the ascension, and he is now coming down again too. Not with a written law carved on tablets of stone, but with the dynamic energy of the law written on human hearts. And that's actually exactly where we started this sermon series seven weeks ago. We started it by talking about Mount Sinai and how God met his people there um, after the exodus from Egypt. Uh, God met them at Sinai, descended on the mountain in front of them. He brought them into his presence. He gave them his law. Well, here at Pentecost, what we actually see happen is that God does it again. This is the new Sinai if you will. Only this time his presence comes among us not through a cloud descending on a mountain and thunder and lightning, but instead through his spirit. And because of that, his law comes to us this time, not written on tablets of stone, but instead written on our very hearts. In other words, during this Jewish festival of Pentecost, during this harvest holiday, during this feast celebrating how God met with his people at Sinai, God comes to his people again. He comes to bring about a new kind of harvest. And he comes to give them, us included, his presence in a new way that will never go away. And when you stop to think about it, the implications of that, I think at least, are beyond profound. After all, what we're really saying here is that the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, God himself now lives inside us. When you put it that way, that sounds actually kind of nuts, right? It sounds kind of crazy. That's the sort of thing that can get you institutionalized, actually, to say, God lives in me, right? And yet that's actually what we believe as Christians. And so what I want to do for the rest of our time together this morning is simply walk through a couple of implications of that, four implications of that, four implications of what it means that the Holy Spirit now lives within us. And uh, there are definitely more than four, but uh, I know that there's rain in the forecast for later, so we'll keep this on time, all right? The first one gets at what we were actually talking about in that children's message. What does it mean that the Holy Spirit is our teacher and our guide? Um, after all, that's his role in the Trinity, right? Like we said, God the Father is our creator and sustainer, so he's the one who made everything and keeps it all going. Jesus Christ is our Savior and Lord, so he's the one who has uh, purchased us and made it possible for us as sinful people to be reconciled to God and his children again. But the Holy Spirit is our teacher and our guide. What that means is that as Christians, what we believe is that when you become a Christian, when you confess that Jesus is your Lord and Savior, what happens is that the Holy Spirit actually enters your heart and begins to transform you from the inside out, teaching you what it looks like to live as one of God's people and guiding you in that process. One of my favorite summaries of the gospel gets at that. Um, I heard this years ago, and, and, and I, I've just really appreciated it personally. Um, it goes like this, God loves you just the way you are, but he also loves you too much to leave you that way. 
God loves you just the way you are. He loves you as you are right now. You are good enough, acceptable enough, okay enough to be loved by him. You don't need to go and change and get right in order to be right with him. He loves you just as you are. But he also loves you too much to leave you that way. Because the second you accept Jesus Christ and become one of his people, God starts working on you. He starts working to mold, to shape, to change and transform you. He starts taking what's dead in you because of your sin and making it alive again. He takes what's barren and makes it fruitful. He takes what's not right and makes it the way it's supposed to be. That anger, he wants to make it patience. That lust, he wants to make it love. That pride, he wants to make it humility, and so on and so forth in every single area of our lives. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in us. That's what it means to have him as our teacher and guide. That's what it means to truly live in the presence of God. And that's what happens when God himself takes up residence and lives inside us. It changes us just like any good teacher or guide should. And if that's not happening, if we're not seeing that kind of change, if we're not experiencing that kind of transformation, if we're not seeing the Holy Spirit bring that about in us, then we need to ask ourselves a question. It's not, does the Holy Spirit really live in me? Because if you're a Christian, that question has its answer. He does. And so the question we need to ask ourselves is, am I partnering with the Holy Spirit in his work in me, or am I resisting it? And that brings us to the second implication I want to talk about here. Having the Holy Spirit live in us means that we have actually become, in a very real way, God's house, place where he resides. In one of his commentaries, Old Testament scholar Peter Enns puts that in a way that I'd never really thought about before. He writes, When we think of our bodies as the temple of God, it puts sinning in a different perspective. Because God is not, you know, out there somewhere or up in the sky, you know, looking down occasionally, so you better make sure that you're being good. Instead, God has chosen to take up residence in us. And some things are unthinkable in God's house. For example, he says, no one would put a condom machine alongside the pulpit of the church. Well, we are God's house. And so there are some things that should be unthinkable for us, too. And what Enns is doing here is he's actually picking up on the New Testament idea that the Holy Spirit lives in us and that because of that, we have actually become God's temple. The temple isn't a building somewhere in the Middle East anymore, okay? It's us. According to Scripture, it's us. Because the Holy Spirit lives in us, we are actually his temple. We are God's house. And so what Enns is saying is that we have to live like it. Through the Holy Spirit, God dwells within us. He's right here with us every step of the way always. And so there are some things that should be off limits for us as Christians. A good rule of thumb would be to say that whatever you would feel is inappropriate in the sanctuary of a church, whatever you wouldn't want to happen here in the midst of a worship service, whatever you wouldn't want to do in front of other believers at a Bible study or say, whatever those things are, we should never do them. We should never say them. We should never think them. We should never act like they're okay. Because it's God's temple, 
they're not. To put this a slightly different way, as God's temple, what we have to realize is that everywhere that we go, he goes. Whatever we participate in, he participates in. Whatever we say or think he is a witness to, we can't think that it's good enough simply not to be sinful people for an hour and a half here on a Sunday morning. Because the Holy Spirit lives within us. And so the transformation, change, and fruitfulness that results from that should be apparent. And we need to participate with him in that process so that his work in our lives truly helps us look like the temple of God that we are. Another implication of all this, though, is that just like the Holy Spirit lives in us, he also lives in other people. And the interesting thing about that is we don't always even know who they are. In fact, they don't always even know who they are. Some people haven't come to faith yet, and the Holy Spirit is already there working in their hearts. This, by the way, is why pastor and author John Ortberg says that if you really want to see change in someone else, the best thing that you can do is to pray for them. Whether it's an unbeliever that you hope will come to faith eventually, a believer that you wish was different and more Christ-like, or simply somebody who's struggling and you want them to know the peace and comfort that comes with knowing the Lord, Ortberg says, pray. He still says that you should talk to that person too, okay? Praying isn't an excuse to ignore someone. We still need to engage with them. It's just that we shouldn't forget to pray for them either because as Ortberg puts it, we can talk to someone else. But that's about all that we can do to convince them of something. When we pray, though, we, are actually, we actually have a more direct line to their heart because the Holy Spirit can work in them in a more direct way than we ever could. And so while prayer, while prayer isn't the only part of working with someone else, it is a big part because the Holy Spirit lives in us. He can influence and affect us, and he's done that for all of us to bring us to faith. He does that for others, too in ways that we never could. One final implication of all of this, Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of God in our hearts, the giving of his presence in a way that we can never lose, like we just said, that changes and transforms us in ways that nothing else can. And so as a result, it not only reconciles us to God, it also reconciles us to each other. You know, I recently read a book by John Perkins. Um, if you don't know who John Perkins is, he's an 89-year-old Christian author, theologian, and civil rights activist who has worked for over 60 years for justice, equality, and what he calls biblical reconciliation between different ethnic groups. Along the way, he's written 17 books, co-founded the Christian Community Development Association, or CCDA, and worked with countless churches and ministries to further the kingdom of God. He even inspired a song by the band Switchfoot. So, those are his credentials. The book I recently read uh, is what he says will actually be his last one. At 89 years old, he says his time working in ministry is nearing an end, and he wants to pass the baton along to others. It's called One Blood, Parting Words to the Church on Race and Love, and it's a timely and important challenge to the church to take the sin of racism seriously and to confront it with the gospel. Uh, there's a lot that I appreciated in the book, but as I was getting ready for this sermon, there was one part that especially caught my attention. In one chapter, Perkins traces the history of how it is that we've come to have the different ethnic divisions and struggles that we have as human beings. And he actually traces it all the way back to the Tower of Babel in Genesis 12, or 11. Genesis 11. 
before Babel, he says, we were actually one race, one culture, one society and family of human beings. At Babel, though, we had our languages confused. We became different. And out of our different languages, we developed different ways of living, different cultures, and ultimately different ethnic groups, nationalities, and groups of people. Because of our sin, then, what we eventually did was we seized on those differences and began to use them to say that some of us are better, some of us are worse, and some of us don't deserve to be treated fairly and equally. At a basic level, that's where Perkins says the sin of racism comes from, from, from Babel and from the history of our difference. And unfortunately, it's a, a problem and a sin that we know all too well in our own country and culture. And yet, what do we see here in Acts chapter 2? What do we see in this text? We see the reversal of all of that, right? At Pentecost, the Holy Spirit overcomes the barrier of language, the barrier of ethnic difference, the barrier of sinful beliefs about superiority. And instead, what we see the Holy Spirit do is unite us together, reconcile us, and recreate us as the one family of God again. It's a beautiful picture of the kind of reconciliation and renewal that only the Holy Spirit can bring about. And it's yet one more implication of the Spirit's work in our hearts and his transformation in our lives. And yet, that kind of reconciliation between us, horizontally, as human beings, is only possible first because of the vertical reconciliation that we have with God through Jesus Christ. And that, of course, brings us to the gospel. You see, if God doesn't dwell within us and work to transform us through his Holy Spirit, then the simple fact is that none of us would ever become the kind of people who can be reconciled to each other. We would simply stay the sinful, broken people that we are, stuck in our sin and continuing to break things apart. And yet, By God's grace, we are not those kind of people anymore. Because of Jesus Christ, because of his life, death, and resurrection, we have been redeemed, renewed, and reconciled back to God. We were estranged from him. We were on the outside looking in. We were far away and hopelessly lost. And yet now, we are his temple. Now we are his people And now we get to live in his presence forever. That's God's grace to us. He saved us, called us back to himself, and made us his people once more. And that grace continues to us because through his Holy Spirit, he continues that work each and every day by abiding right here within us. Thanks be to God. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord God, we thank you for your spirit. We thank you for your spirit 2,000 years ago who came in the most exciting way. It gathered a crowd together and it led to 3,000 people joining the church in a single day. And like we already said, you are still continuing to gather your people. Unite us in your spirit as brothers and sisters in Christ. Empower us to be your people in this world. Help us to live as your church so that we can spread the good news of your gospel everywhere we go, knowing all the while 
that you go with us. Pray this all in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.